The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. I am your rabbi, solemnly dedicated to revealing how the world really does work. And uh, first of all, uh, I want to thank you, particularly those of you who've uh, helped to promote the show, tell people about it. Thanks very much indeed. And uh, here's a, a favor I want to ask of you. Uh, with this little simple strategy, we can instantly and overnight double the listenership, which would be great for me, and it actually would benefit you too down the road. Here's what you need to do. Uh, over the next five seconds, try and think of one person who, uh, with whom you are sufficiently like-minded that they are likely to find this show interesting. And I'll tell you in advance now that we're going to be talking about money, business, profit. Not profit like an Old Testament prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T. No, we're speaking about P-R-O-F-I-T, profit. And, uh, and that's something I think that everybody uh, will find valuable because uh, regardless of whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you have your own business, whether you're an employee, whether you are job-seeking, or whether you even if you think you're retired, the truth is that there is a secret having to do with profit that I think will be valuable to absolutely everybody. So go on, uh, five seconds. Take five seconds and try and think of one person that you're going to send the show to or uh, send a link to the show to. Okay, are you ready? Five seconds from now. Okay, thank you very much indeed. I'm pleased that you uh, will take a shot at that. And we can now move on to the main thing. And what is the main thing? Well, uh, if you ask Army Major General Robert Scales uh, during the Iraq War, uh, one of the famous things he said is, the main thing in war is to make sure that the main thing remains the main thing. Now, I don't think uh, Major General Robert Scales came up with that. As a matter of fact, I don't think anybody even knows who came up with the, you know, the saying. The main thing is that the main thing stays the main thing. Uh, it's uh, succinct and well said, very true in war and in business, but, uh, but also in life in general, you know. Um, do you remember uh, the movie City Slickers? Uh, it starred uh, Billy Crystal playing Mitch. Uh, a guy from the city who went out to West to ha to experience two weeks of being a cowboy, and then the quintessential cowboy who's sort of teaching him not only about how to be a cowboy but also about life, and there was um, Jack Palance playing Curly. Well, how's about this uh, little sequence? Do you remember this? Enjoy it. Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? this your finger 
One thing. Just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean sh That's great, but what's the one thing? That's what you've got to figure out. Okay. Uh, there you go, right? Uh, the main thing is, well, that's something you are going to have to find out. But as long as you remain focused on the main thing, okay, well, you get the idea. And so I want to speak for a moment about the main thing. And uh, right now, the main thing we're going to be discussing is profit or, in some cases, uh, cash flow. Okay, because if you are, uh, uh, you know, let's say you're, uh, you're, you're running the business of your family, Profit may not be the right word. Cash flow is probably the right word there. But um, at any rate, I want to tell you, um, so, and I could be reading literally from any one of a thousand things. And um, I, I thought of this because I was paying attention to some of the debates about uh, President Trump's tax bill that the Republicans are arguing about and arguing about. And it would be nice if they were arguing with the Democrats about it, but they're arguing among themselves. <laughs> and, um, and one of the things you keep hearing from Republicans as well, oh, this just benefits the rich people. And, you know, how pathetic is that, that even at this stage, after the second half of the 20th century, which really was the greatest democratization of capital in all of American history, perhaps all of the world history, in the sense that uh, stocks and bonds, securities, basically the ownership of American industry, moved out into the mainstream to, to the point that today... So many people, huge numbers of people, not Wall Street traders, but plumbers and contractors and teachers and bookkeepers and, and uh, people in every single walk of life actually own slices of American industry, what, either through directly owning stocks or maybe you own mutual funds or maybe it's a 401k or maybe it's some other retirement plan. But whatever it is, that money is mostly, for the most part, in ownership of American industry. And it's been a pretty good investment these last few decades. And so the idea that, a, um, that those people who pay the most tax, I mean, the, the, the tax rate on American corporations, I mean, talk about killing the golden goose or killing the goose that lays the golden eggs. Uh, what a disaster this has been over the last few administrations where the belief is there was just no limit. You could continue forcing American businesses to make good on the reckless promises made by politicians. And so politicians promised all kinds of goodies, and then they just raised the tax rate on business and other few notches in order to try and make good on that. Well, yes, a new tax bill would obviously lower the tax rate on businesses. And who would that benefit? You, me, all of us. But uh, the shameful and dishonest rhetoric, particularly on the left, and unfortunately uh, a good many Republican uh, politicians have uh, become contaminated 
with the thinking of the left, tragically, but that that has happened. And uh, this is the line you keep getting. Oh, the tax bill benefits the rich. It's it's a real shame. And uh, it is a failure to understand that when a company makes a profit, that makes it richer, it's more successful. Yes, it means they pay more taxes, but it also means that everybody, every single individual or entity that owns stock in that enterprise is doing better. It's, it's a good thing. But unfortunately, uh, this is not something that people have clear. Um, one of the, uh, the kinds of phrases, listen to this. I mean, I, I happen to be reading something from a, um, a business website. It doesn't matter what, because as I say, I could literally have found a thousand examples off the internet. But this is just one thing. Um, so he writes, the profit motive, therefore, is the fundamental principle underlying modern capitalism. And you, by the way, you can just sense the stench arising from these words. He's holding his nose. The profit motive, therefore, is the fundamental principle underlying modern capitalism, the all-encompassing priority of corporate entities. This drive for profit is incompatible with the complex needs of humanity and the environment as it leads to exponential growth. It's not sustainable. It's going to create increasing misery and increasing numbers of people who have unequal access. All right, okay. All right. What, what is really going on here? This drive for profit on the part of uh, capitalism and corporations is incompatible with the complex needs of humanity and the environment. What's happening is they are misunderstanding the function of a business. They're misunderstanding the function of a business. Now, this tendency to look to a successful institution for the solution of, if not all, the ills of mankind, at least a good many of them, this is not uncommon. You find, for instance, people struggling with marriage, either in the process of getting married or in the process of staying married, and they feel the marriage isn't providing them with everything they need. And uh, in marriage seminars that Susan and I do, we constantly teach that you don't Look to your spouse for everything. It's all very nice when people say, oh, my husband or my wife is my very best friend. And, and that's lovely, and it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile sentiment, and, uh, and I'm certainly happy when I hear people say that. But there's also a slight danger in it because when we expect our best friend to be there for us in certain ways, those are not necessarily the ways we expect a spouse to be there for us. So in other words, um, a best friend might be the sort of guy I can call up at 10 o'clock at night and say, you know, I, I just, I cannot go to bed. I'm too wound up. I, I need to just get out of it. You know, any way you'd like to come out with me and we'll get a beer uh, for half an hour or so and just r unwind and relax. And in any event, I'd like to chat with you a little bit. 
and uh, and your best friend probably says, yeah, in spite of the fact he was already in pajamas and ready to go to bed, but no, he quickly gets dressed again and he's ready. That's what a best friend does. Is that necessarily what a spouse can or should do? Well, you know, if your spouse happens to be a new mom who's going to be woken up to feed a baby in three hours' time and again a few hours after that, all of all of that before she has to get up in the morning – that's not exactly what you'd be wanting to ask her to do. And likewise, uh, a woman's best friend might be somebody that with whom she can sit and talk literally for an hour. And any male stenographer taking notes, uh, when asked afterwards, what was the purpose of that meeting? Like, what did they decide? What did they arrive at? What did they conclude? He'd shake his head and say, nothing. They were just talking. And ladies, if you asked your husband, even if you do think he's your best friend, if you asked your husband to just talk with you for a lengthy period of time, it is very difficult for us to do. Now, we work on that. We try because we know how important communication is for our marriage. We know how important it is for you. But it's hard. It doesn't come naturally for us. And we are happy that you should have a best female friend. That isn't me. That isn't you. We're happy for that. And so you don't expect your marriage to deliver everything. A marriage is fundamental a marriage delivers crucial things. A marriage enhances life and is absolutely indispensable to a good life. All of that true. But it doesn't supply everything. Neither does a business. But we do need to know that the main thing has to be that the main thing remains the main thing. What is the main thing? Well, unlike Curly, who told Mitch, that's what you've got to find out, I'm actually going to tell you what it is in just a few moments. But first of all, please don't forget to um, uh, go ahead and try to uh, think of one person you're going to share the show with. I'd really appreciate that. It'd be a big favor. And uh, also go ahead, visit the website at uh, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, you'll find that for those of you who are focused on uh, building revenue, for those who are preparing for an increased revenue for 2018, then you need to do the right things for that. And you'll see a financial book package. Uh, if you do not yet have those two books, then those are things you're going to need, regardless of where you fit in to the economy. As I say, looking for a job, employed, entrepreneur, whatever it is. If increased revenue is the goal, and yes, it should be anyways, uh, these are the two books you need, the financial book package at rabbidaniellappin.com. Quick break. I will be back with you in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. You want to save money in a place that gives you growth? 
control and certainty without stock market risk or tax risk, and you want guarantees and you want it all tax-free. That's a tall order. But you can get all of that with properly designed participating whole life insurance. Most people think life insurance pays after you're dead. That's true. But you can have tax-free access to use your life insurance while you're alive. Get the free book to find out how. Call 702-660-7000. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi, everybody. Well, here we are together again on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And, of course, money is an essential part of how the world really works. And the general envy of money and the distaste for people who create it has become so widespread and so much a part of the language of politics that the danger is that it could dramatically reshape the culture of America. Calvin Coolidge famously once said, the business of America is business. And nobody erupted in outrage. Nobody proclaimed that that was a mental spasm masquerading as a thought. No, people accepted it. The business of America is business. It's one of the reasons that the sign for the dollar bill is U.S. United States. That's right. If you superimpose the U on an S so that the lower curve of the U corresponds to the lower curve of the S, you'll get an S with what appears to be two vertically, vertical lines running through it. This is not fanciful, by the way. This is reality. It made perfect sense for the symbol of money to be the same as the abbreviation of the United States. It was a good thing, not a bad thing. And I'm hoping during the remainder of today's show to be able to explain just why that is. But uh, first of all, why the hostility towards business? Well, one of the problems is that those in government today in state legislatures, as well as in the House of Representatives and the Senate in Washington, D.C., are, of recent years, bureaucrats and intellectuals. Whereas, if you go back a little while, typically, the people that uh, were sent to represent us in Washington, D.C., were doers. They were business people. There were doctors, there were farmers, there were people who did things. But increasingly today, uh, larger and larger numbers of representatives on a state and federal level are people who, in many cases, have done nothing else but what they euphemistically call public service. No, no. Public service would be if you didn't get paid for it. Public service might be what members of the military do. But what politicians do is very far from public service. It's a charming euphemism. But uh, there really are not a lot of people listening to this show who wouldn't gladly switch lives 
with a House of Representatives, a member of the House or a member of the Senate, and enjoy those health benefits and that salary and that pension plan. Yeah, no, let's not use the term public service. It's, it's a shameful lie. It's not public service at all. And larger and larger numbers of representatives are people who've done very little except, quote, public service. Many of them come from uh, other bureaucratic areas, other, and many, many of them come from uh, top-class Ivy League universities. In other words, the growing number of representatives who have no contact with the real world is really very scary indeed. Now, I have to tell you that um, this is, uh, is, is something that, well, let me go back to the 1972 presidential election. Uh, you might remember there was Nixon against McGovern, and the liberals of the country united with, oh, McGovern was so fantastic, everything, and he was an extreme liberal. He didn't start off as a liberal, but uh, he ended up, as, as a liberal. He started off actually as a Republican, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and uh, um, as, as time went by, he became very liberal. The Vietnam War was a major part of what radicalized him, and, uh, and time went by, and he became the, really the symbol of liberalism, so much so that uh, historians record that uh, on many issues, and you know this, I mean, this is, this is standard, right? Uh, senators and members of the House don't have time, don't put in the time to read every bill and study every issue. They don't. They have staff people, and they say to their staff people, what should I vote? And McGovern used to say, uh, what are the liberal people doing? And he would just go that way. But uh, e eventually he uh, left, he finished with politics. He got wiped out in that election. Nixon uh, won in a landslide back in 72. Uh, if I remember correctly, remember I, I wasn't I wasn't in the United States yet but um, just from from history um, Nixon won 49 states and McGovern won Massachusetts and the District of Columbia which I think tells you something at any rate um, when that was done um, McGovern and his wife I was her name Eleanor I think uh, McGovern's what, what went and they bought a, a small hotel in Stratford, Connecticut, 150 rooms. Uh, it was an inn, um, a charming little country hotel. And they intended uh, creating a business. This was going to be their retirement plan. They were going to build a hotel and a restaurant and a public conference. Anyways, uh, it didn't take very long. Um, it, two or three years went by and he was bankrupt. It was a big failure. And uh, he published, two years later, he published reflections on the experience in the Wall Street Journal. And here's what happened. He attributed the failure uh, to the cost of dealing. It's honest, true. This is George McGovern attributed the failure of his hotel to the cost of dealing with federal, state, and local regulations. And he said they were passed with good intentions. But they did make life difficult for small businesses and uh, added enormously to the cost of dealing uh, with frivolous lawsuits. And he wrote, quote, I wish that during the years I was in public office, 
I had had this first-hand experience about the difficulties business people face every day. That knowledge would have made me a better United States senator and a more understanding presidential contender. <laughs> yes, thanks, George McGovern, a little bit late. He did a lot of damage. I mean, many of those regulations were things he did. It was, it was very problematic. Anyway, that's, um, that's what George McGovern did. And, and George McGovern was just another example of somebody who, again, only learned after he left Congress what running a business was like. And that was already 1970s. Now there are very few members of Congress who have the slightest idea of what it means to run a business. And uh, their approach is essentially the very seductive allure of socialism, uh, which is that, uh, you know, envy. I mean, they've got, must mean I don't, must mean that uh, uh, less worthy people with less education than me have more money than me. And so a general dislike of business. But it was also aggravated by the fact that uh, you'll notice that whenever liberals speak of the rich and the wealthy and the 1%, right, they're always talking about business professionals. But very seldom do they point a finger at uh, star NFL quarterbacks or, uh, or other sports millionaires or movie stars. And the reason is very simple. And that is because even a dyed-in-the-wool socialist understands why a uh, baseball or a football star makes a lot of money. Because they say, well, you know, they do something I cannot do. Uh, they can do things with a ball that is, I, they can hit a ball, they can kick a ball, they can run with a ball better than I ever could. And what's more, they've got a limited uh, productive uh, career. After all, at a certain age, they can, uh, can no longer play. That's what they say about, uh, about sports stars. How about movie stars? They understand that as well. They think of them as, as superbly good-looking people. And again, a little bit different in Europe, by the way, uh, because in Europe, there's a little bit more of a sense of movie stars being great actors or actresses. Here, it's seen just as good looks completely overlooking the fact that many of them are actually very talented actors and actresses. But uh, at any rate, they do say, you know, look, I don't look like that. And so obviously they make the big money. But when it comes to business, they don't understand what a businessman does. They don't get it. So uh, they don't understand that a businessman provides a service which is in, in, in many instances somewhat intangible. You, you don't always see it. And sometimes a, a businessman apparently does very little and yet is rewarded enormously. But in reality, what the politician or the intellectual fails to grasp is that the businessman saved an enterprise. Uh, back in early 20, uh, 2009, 2009 uh, all right, I, I enjoy motorcycles, right? And uh, I've never been a Harley-Davidson guy. Um, I, I find it an unsophisticated motorcycle. I know that some of the, the more recent models enjoy very sophisticated engineering, but by and large, uh, low revving, big cylinders, banging away, uh, noisy. So I've never been a Harley-Davidson fan. Uh, 
Um, I've uh, I've liked some of the uh, the early Honda uh, motorcycles. Um, I've liked a Yamaha motorcycle. I even uh, very much like the BMW motorcycles, particularly the brick. But um, Harley Davidson never been my thing. But nonetheless, uh, back in uh, 2009, uh, they were they were going under. There was a credit crunch. The uh, the finance arm of Harley Davidson was an enormous mess. Warren Buffett steps in and uh, invests not a huge sum of money. But the fact that he involved himself built up confidence. And all of a sudden, uh, everybody else said, oh, well, if Warren Buffett's in there, everything is fine. You see, politicians, intellectuals, they don't get that. They simply don't understand why Warren Buffett walked away with, uh, with serious money. I mean, he got a fantastic return. He got a 15% return on the, on the money he invested there. So, you know, it wasn't a huge sum of money, but it was a terrific return. And to the uh, intellectual and the politician, that's just an example. Oh, you see, the rich are just getting richer. They don't understand that Buffett's reputation for integrity and reliability, smart investing, was an asset. And he brought that and he loaned some of that credibility to, uh, to Harley-Davidson. He did it uh, for Bank of America, by the way, two years later. Uh, B of A was struggling. They were in a tremendous capital crunch. And so uh, he stepped up again. And he, again, negotiated a nice return for himself. But B of A recovered, and it was an enormously valuable thing. He did the same thing for General Electric. Uh, that was, I think, uh, 2008 approximately. Um, General Electric needed to raise capital. They, they were hoping to do a $12 billion offering. It was serious. I mean, they really, really needed it. So once again, they went to Buffett, and, uh, and as soon as Buffett was in, it gave investors confidence in GE's plan to reduce financial exposure, and it worked very, very well. Uh, General Electric repaid Buffett plus 10 percent, and um, he, uh, he he made t- a terrific profit. But he brought something. I'm just talking about Buffett as an example. I mean, he's the upper end, the stratosphere of uh, business professionals. But on a lower level, everybody in business. Uh, carries with him the asset of reputation and credibility, which is enormously valuable. By the way, Buffett did it for Goldman Sachs also. Uh, they were teetering on the brink of a total collapse, and uh, and nobody wanted to invest in them. People thought they were just doomed. And once again, Buffett came in, and as soon as people saw all those investors who were fleeing, frightened of financial stocks, turned around and came back, and uh, and they said, well, if, if Buffett was in at Goldman, then we can as well. And uh, within a year or so, Goldman stock had recovered virtually everything. And uh, two years, within two years, Buffett was paid his money back. I mean, all right, building a reputation for integrity is part of the assets of a of a businessman or a businesswoman. Politicians and intellectuals don't get it. They simply cannot see it because. A politician can say absolutely anything and still come back. Intellectuals, same thing. They don't have any vested interest in their integrity. In other words, who 
ever comes to an intellectual, whoever does, and says, by the way, uh, you know, four years ago you said this and it contradicts. No, nobody does that on, in the academia. It never happens. And I can give you proof after proof after proof uh, of professors who've made the most uh, inane statements and proclamations, uh, including a, a certain Stanford professor who predicted that uh, millions of Americans would die of starvation by the year 2000. He's still on the staff of the uh, faculty of Stanford University. It makes no difference. But in business, your integrity is everything. I'll explain a little bit more uh, in terms of how the main thing has to be, that the main thing stays the main thing, as soon as we get back uh, in just a moment. The website, as you'll remember, rabbidaniellappin.com. And please make sure that uh, you have both Thou Shalt Prosper, the Ten Commandments for Making Money, as well as the, the uh, companion volume called Business Secrets from the Bible, Spiritual Success Strategies for Financial Abundance. And all of this um, is available at rabbidaniellappin.com. If you have neither, they're available in a good price book package. And even if you have one of them, it still might make sense because that way you can give one as a gift because it's coming to that time of the year where we want to give gifts to people we love. Anyways, RabbiDanielLappin.com. Take a look at the book package, and I'll be right back. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Hi, everybody. Back with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And look, one of the flaws in what I'm going to be imparting to you, which is this idea that the main thing is that the main thing must remain the main thing, and that the main thing is profit, uh, and or cash flow, depending. But uh, the idea that profit is the main thing is all very well. Uh, but there is a slight problem. And that is that there has developed something we call crony capitalism over the last decades in America, which is uh, an alliance between government and business. Not all businesses, but businesses of a certain size essentially co-opt, essentially pay politicians to, uh, to give them exclusivity. So, for instance, on a very uh, ordinary man-in-the-street, mundane level, uh, the number of regulations, the number of forms that have to be filled in, the number of bureaucrats that need to be placated before you can start a business uh, in most states around the country has been skyrocketing. Now, there are still some states that are much, much worse than others, but there's no question that in the last 50 years, the number of forms, the bureaucratic obstacles to starting a business are huge, vastly increased. What is more, the number of ordinary occupations that serve as a stepping stone onto the escalator of economic success um, that have required governmental licensing also skyrocketed. There are so many occupations that require government license. I mean, really? 
if I'm going to have my hair plaited, uh, if I'm going to have my fingernails done, do I really care if it is a government-licensed person? Or would it be okay for me if I just checked with my neighbor and I said, hey, where do you get your nails done? They look great. And I'll go on that basis. I don't care. But these are ways in which business manages to block competition, an unholy alliance between business and government. It's a terrible thing. It corrupts government and it destroys economic vitality within the country. Now, uh, that having been said, the, the fact still does remain that um, we make a horrible mistake in our culture of looking to business for more than it should be looked for. In the same way as I told you earlier, people make the mistake of looking to marriage for more than it should be looked for. People do the same thing with business. And uh, one of the worst words that has found its way into business language usage is stakeholder. <laughs> well, they came up with that because they wanted to suggest that uh, there are more people who have a right in a business than its customers, owners, and employees. Really? Like who? Oh, neighbors, is, is one example, but there are, there are all kinds. Today, the number of stakeholders, there are some business schools that teach that there are 18 sets of stakeholders in any business, <laughs> of whom only one actually own anything in the business. So uh, this is a really bad, damaging, and corrosive word, the idea of stakeholder, because once again, it means that we are turning to business for more than we should expect it to deliver. Business is expected to do only one thing, and that's turn a profit. Now, again, there's a simpler way of, of understanding and visualizing it when you think of what a business really is. A business is simply you trying to make a living. That's all it is. And you start a company. And then you find that there are ways that you can do better by providing a living for other people, too, in the form of jobs. And it's a wonderful system. It's a great idea. But you mustn't expect it to do any more than produce a profit. Now, I want to tell you a story. Uh, this is a cautionary tale. It's a morality play. All right, this is a story about a company. And by the way, this, this is applied to so many companies. Uh, I'm picking only one to talk about just because it's always more interesting to talk about a particular than, than just generalities. But in this case, I'm talking about a company called Etsy. They're like a miniature eBay or a miniature Amazon. Etsy is a, a company which provides a sort of online marketplace for um, people who do art and crafts and that kind of thing. And uh, very successful. It was doing, it was doing great. But um, what happened is they began to see themselves as being progressive. And they began to see themselves as providing a, uh, a very different kind of, of employment. You got a job in Etsy. And um, it, it was a very beautiful, sensitive workplace. I'm not mocking this, by the way. I'm just telling you what they themselves said. Um, 
employees were encouraged to share their emotions. There was a lot of crying going on at the office. Um, there were perks that included paid parental leave, uh, free organic food. Um, they had a pet-friendly workplace. And uh, they were very committed to in environmental standards and diversity standards. And not surprisingly, um, it stopped doing so well. So they needed capital. So they went public. That was in 2015. And uh, guess what happens when you go public? The public who owns your company wants you to produce a profit. And meanwhile, they had got used to producing losses, right? I mean, for how long can a company lose between 2 and $3 million a year, right? Not so well, not good at all. And so uh, investors, who are now the owners of the company, grew impatient. And uh, the owners have more rights in a company than employees, right? Because an employee is there on an agreement, right? I offer you a job, you accept it. Now, again, the government has interfered dreadfully over the last few decades in this freedom of transaction between employer and employee. And you know, I understand there was exploitation. I understand the, that many uh, employers behaved abominably. But the bottom line is that when the government mandates a minimum wage, just to give you one example, then at this point you no longer have a free market transaction. And the end result might well be the very opposite. But what politician ever heard of unintended consequences? So... Uh, in Etsy, uh, there were all kinds of things that were more important than making a profit. But when the owners became members of the public, and there were many of them, they began to be a little bit impatient. And so they threw out the uh, CEO who had been there for about six years and was a very, very touchy-feely kind of guy who was really much more focused on providing really beautiful workplace environments for the workers than he was on producing a profit. So that's why they kept on creating losses. So then they get a new guy, and the first thing is he does, he fires uh, 220 employees um, out of a few. Out of a few, it was a, it was a fairly good slice, but one of the um, frightening signs was that. It had no negative impact. In other words, there was a lot of people being employed that weren't needed there. That's not how business works. And, um, uh, okay, so what happens? Um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was founded, and I, I should probably tell you just a little bit about that as well, but I don't want to spend too much time on it, okay? But... Uh, Maybe before I tell you a whole lot about uh, Etsy, uh, I should also tell you just a little bit about um, Andrew Carnegie. And again, the, the attitude we find uh, prevalent, I'll tell you more about that uh, just as soon as we come back. Website, rabbidaniellappin.com. You know what I'm going to say. The, the books are Thou Shall Prosper, Ten Commandments for Making Money, Business Secrets from the Bible. And um, these are really a very good thing. Uh, if you are thinking about making 2018 a year of renewed dedication to increasing your revenue. 
A quick break. I'll be right back. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The Morning Blaze with Doc Thompson. Join that team, that part of the company or the company as a whole, and then say, I want the culture to change because I don't like it. Has it been successful? These people have chosen to work here because they want to. And now you want everybody to stop because you're bothered? Move on. Get over it. Suck it up. That's not America. Yes, treat people well. But stop demanding people treat you well and just move on. The Morning Blaze. Weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hello, everybody. Faithful listeners to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, we're back. I said I'd tell you a little bit about Andrew Carnegie. Uh, Look, if you've ever gone into a library in in dozens and dozens and dozens of particularly smaller towns around America, uh, you would have gone into a Carnegie Library. There are so many things that were built out of the philanthropy of Andrew Carnegie, who was born, by the way, into a very poor family in Scotland in 1835. Uh, They arrived because they had absolutely literally nothing to eat. They immigrated to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Andrew was 12 at the point. They came literally penniless. Um, It's doubtful that Andrew had more than four years of formal schooling. He had to go to work to help feed the family. And uh, eventually, of course, he became enormously successful. And uh, uh, years later, a clergyman in England, a guy by the name of uh, Reverend Hugh Price Hughes, uh, he was a well-known minister in England. He wrote, and this was 1891, I'm quoting his words, when I contemplate Carnegie, As the representative of a particular class of millionaires, I am forced to say with all personal respect and without holding him in the least responsible for his unfortunate circumstances that he is an anti-Christian phenomenon, a social monstrosity, and a grave political peril. Um, The reason that Reverend Hughes gave for uh, how bad a person Andrew Carnegie was, that he didn't deal at all. He paid no attention to the fundamental questions of society. All he cared about was the profitability of his company. Um, a, uh, uh, an American clergyman by the name of William Tucker, guy in New England, he was at Andover Seminary uh, and later on at Dartmouth. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but he wrote... Um, that uh, it's all very well that Andrew Carnegie spoke about giving away uh, their money when they died, but he was still missing the whole question of economic justice and redistribution of wealth. The ethical question of today, he wrote, centers in the distribution uh, of, of wealth. People have to... Okay, you get the idea. Uh, this is an absolutely ongoing battle and an ongoing struggle, but at the present point, we are at a time when you and I are in the minority in America today in terms of people who have any understanding at all of business and its proper role. And uh, the Etsy company is an example of this. Start a company to make a profit? No! 
profit is very low on the list. Okay. They, um, they started it in 2005 um, so that there was an alternative to eBay and Amazon where craftsmen who really cared about their art could sell jewelry and clothing, etc., etc. And um, she said, uh, I mean, and, and this, this is what it was intended to do. Uh, there were a lot of women selling on Etsy, so that was one of the things they saw as a good thing. But um, as it grew, they rejected traditional corporate ideas such as profit uh, in favor of, um, well, first of all, building consensus became much more important than moving quickly. Now, you know, in business, you can't sit around. Uh, by the way, if if you ever wonder about whether to invest in a company, go visit their office or their shop or their factory or their headquarters. If you see people wandering around as if they're working at the post office, stay away, run for your life, right? Because if there's no sense of urgency in a business, it's doomed. It's very bad. Well, uh, with Etsy, they were, there was no urgency. As long as it took to make sure that everybody was on board with every decision, that's the way it went. Um, the company also believed that uh, Etsy had to be equally beneficial to buyers, sellers, employees, and, if you don't mind, the planet. And uh, this idealism, I understand. I mean, look, I get it. It was infectious. Uh, people really liked working there. Why wouldn't they? Right? Because they were more important. The workers were more important than the owners. And by the way, my understanding, limited as it is, of the millennial culture is somewhat like that as well. Right? I, I don't think it's a sustainable, to use a popular word, a sustainable view. And um, anyways, eventually uh, they began to feel the pressure from investors who bought the company. And... Um, even though, oh, it, it turns out, by the way, I found the number. There were a 1,000 employees. When the new regime took over with the idea of cutting costs and restoring profitability, uh, they fired about 20% of the employee um, uh, of the employee roster because they weren't needed. So anyways, um, what did they do? They developed a sense of urgency. That, that was what they focused on. And uh, they, they stopped the idea. Expenses up till the time that they brought on a new CEO, every year expenses were climbing more rapidly than revenue. That's a disaster. But if you feel that the most important thing is employee satisfaction, well, then it's okay, right, if you lose money because the employees are still happy. One of the key things in business is long-term. When a business professional thinks long-term, good decisions are likely to be made. Anyways, uh, Etsy is a, is, a, is a great example of um, people taking a long time to understand that a business has only one responsibility, and that is to be profitable. Without that, there's nothing else. And profitable in a way that doesn't endanger the long-term viability of the company, obviously, right? Meaning it must be profitable and be able to be sustainable, continue being profitable. So um, anyway, that's, that's what they did. 
and uh, Etsy has turned around and um, uh, when the new CEO was introduced, by the way, he, uh, he tried to, to introduce himself very nicely, but he, it was perfectly clear that they got rid of the, the, the popular CEO. Why wouldn't he be popular? Employees loved him. Investors didn't. The owners of the company didn't. And uh, uh, one of the employees spoke about the introduction of the new regime, and he said, yesterday felt impersonal, unempathetic, and decidedly un-Etsy. <laughs> he said, what is the new leadership planning to do to earn our trust and maintain the empathetic and human culture that is the entire reason that many of us chose to work here? Well, you know what? Maybe one of the reasons you could choose to work there is to help contribute to the profitability of the company so you can have an ongoing tr uh, job. Well, uh, I don't know if Etsy is going to survive or not. I, I'm not a prophet, uh, although I believe in profit. Uh, but it is its sales are up. Um, they're doing a number of interesting things to 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 drive sales and to to bring in more sellers and to bring in more buyers. And uh, they've changed their mission statement. By the way, um, the old mission statement was to reimagine commerce in ways that build a more fulfilling and lasting world. <laughs> um, okay, these are very nice sentiments. But that's not what a business is all about. And so whether you are an entrepreneur, whether you are a, uh, a, a personal family person, whatever you're doing, whether you have a job, whether you look anywhere, no matter what you're doing, uh, cash flow or – right, cash flow because it doesn't make sense to speak about profit – uh, if you're uh, running the budget of your family, right? So at that point, cash flow is important. If you're running a business, profit is important. But the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing, profit or cash flow. It is. It is the main thing. Uh, and yes, of course, there are other things. But you've got to keep your eye on the main thing. It doesn't mean you don't do anything else in my books, Berry Treasure, excuse me, I'm not talking about Berry Treasure, although it sounds as if I am, but uh, in the book uh, Business Secrets from the Bible and Thou Shall Prosper, I speak about the four areas of your life, uh, dividing up your time, dividing up your focus, but in the time you do dedicate to taking care of your financial affairs, the main thing is that the main thing has to stay the main thing. And uh, in, in this day and age, there are too many people who've been successfully indoctrinated into believing that all kinds of things come ahead. Look, that's just not how the world really works. And that's really what this show is all about. So uh, vis visit RabbiDanielLappin.com. Read up on the uh, financial book package and uh, go ahead and order it. It's great for gifts and it's great for you renewing and redesigning your pattern of financial productivity for the coming year. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lapp, and thanks so much for being part of the show. I wish you a week of good health and prosperity, and until we're together next week, God bless. The Blaze On Demand. 
This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin.